0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolls, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. So what
1: exactly is the rapture? Is it a real event, or is it just made up for some books and movies? Well, let's talk about that, coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Toles, and I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship Program, Todd Talks Bible. We are really getting into an exciting part of the book of Revelation now. We are definitely in a section of Revelation that starts talking about future events things that have not yet happened but will one day and before we start talking about them in detail i want us just take stock of where we've been so far in our study first of all if you remember in our study i gave you an outline in the beginning and this section that we have been studying is called the beginning is the end in other words the beginning of the book of Revelation is talking about the end or the last days of the church. And that covers chapters one through chapter eight, verse one. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and one verse into chapter eight, chapter eight, verse one. That is the end of the first section and it is talking about the last days of the church age. We've also learned that the book of Revelation is revealing things. That's what the word revelation means, to reveal. And we have seen how it has revealed the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, as a warrior. And that's in the first half of chapter one. Then we saw how Jesus revealed to the Apostle John the future of the church. Now for us, since it's almost 2,000 years later since John wrote this book, This, a large part of it, has been history for us. But during this study, as Jesus revealed to John the church future and what would happen in the days of the church, we've learned several key problems that have arisen within the church over the last 2,000 years or so. The first one is that there is a spiritual war being waged by Satan against the church, and that goes into the theme of Jesus being the warrior. He will one day come and give the church victory. We've also learned that losing our first love or our zeal for Jesus is a huge problem within the church. In fact, that is the first step of growing uh, hypocritical and weak in the church and just becoming a worldly church. The first step is losing your zeal or leaving your first love for Christ. Then we learn that there's a false doctrine called Nicolaitanism that we must not tolerate at all. Nicolaitanism is teaching the clerical hierarchy that priests or pastors or above the rest of the people within the church. And we've gone over how Jesus says, Jesus said that was entirely wrong and how he hates the deeds and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But we also learned that when the church fell into this doctrine, this false doctrine of Nicolaitanism and started tolerating these false teachings, it led to all types of compromise with sin and false doctrines that still plague the church. And that is what led to the will will really lead to the great apostasy, the falling away. And I think that's going on now as we discussed last session. So here we are in the section of Revelation where we've learned that there is a remnant of the true believers and then there is the apostate church. And that is the tension that is going on in our present day as we uh, see it in our cultures uh, throughout the world and especially in the American church. And what will prevail, the apostate church or the remnant? That's the tension and that's what's being played out. And that brings us to a very important event that you may have heard about called the rapture. Now the rapture is simply this, it's the return of Jesus Christ For the church before the seven year time of God's judgment that is known as the time of Jacob's distress. So it's the return of Jesus for his church before the seven year time period begins of God's judgment on the earth. Now we'll pick up in chapter four, verse one, and we'll explain the rapture more. Listen to this verse. John is writing. Then, as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me with the sound of a mighty trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. Now, I want to tell you something. This verse here may not be the most controversial verse in the Bible, but it is definitely right on up there. People argue about this. Passage, this particular verse, chapter 4, verse 1, they argue about it almost as much as they argue about any other controversial passage. This is constantly having people argue about it. And they're arguing about it for uh, a number of reasons. The first reason people argue about this verse is that some argue that this portrays the rapture of the church, that the apostle John actually represents the Christians, the true believers, the remnant, and that this represents the rapture of the church, because it says, come up here. Now, I wanna tell you something. I think that theory is just very weak when you look at the biblical evidence. And I want us to point out some verses about how that can't really be true if you're gonna follow scripture faithfully. For instance, If this verse represents John, if John represents the church and him going up there to see what's going on in heaven represents the church, then we have a problem because John doesn't stay up there. Let's go over some verses. You'll see what I'm saying. In chapter seven, verse one, you read this. John writes, then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So John is back on the earth. And he's seen the four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the wind. And we'll talk more about what that symbolizes later. But the point is, John's back on earth. Then you look at 8, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13. And it says this. John writes, Then I looked up, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. So again, it's showing John back on the earth now, and he's seeing something else that's going on, an eagle flying by, and something that's fixing to happen in heaven. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. We see the same thing. John is saying, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So he's still on earth, and he's seeing an angel coming down from heaven. Then you look at 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, 'Go, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. So he's there measuring the temple. And it's clearly talking about the temple on earth in Jerusalem, the third temple that has not yet been built. Then in 12, verse 1. He goes back up to heaven. It says, then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. And it goes on to talk about what he saw then. In 13 verse one, he's back on earth. And it says, now in my vision, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So he's back on earth. In 14 verse one, he says, I saw the lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. So he's over there at Mount Zion. 18, verse 1, or excuse me, 15, verse 1. He says, I saw in heaven another significant event. So now he's back in heaven for the third time, and he's seeing something new that's going on. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says this. After this, John writes, he heard the sound of a vast crowd in heaven. So he's still in heaven at this point chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. So he's back on earth and seeing an angel coming down from heaven. So we are left with a problem here. If this is really, if John really represents the church in chapter 4, verse 1, that is symbolic of the rapture going up. And it really poses the question, is the church going up to heaven for a little bit and coming back down to earth like John did, and then back up to heaven, and then back down to earth, and then over there to Jerusalem to see the temple, and then back up to heaven again? Back and forth, back and forth. Is that really what's going to happen to the church? No. as we'll see, as we study some other passages, we'll see what really happens with the rapture of the church. But well, I think it's pretty clear that it's really weak argument to say that John represents the church. In fact, I do not think chapter 4 verse 1 represents the rapture at all, not if you want to go with a biblical, a consistent biblical interpretation of scripture. I will say this though, remember, we are in the beginning phase of the book of Revelation where the beginning is talking about the ending. The beginning is talking about the ending of the church age. So these first few chapters are talking about the ending of the church age. And we will see a section uh, of Revelation that talks about the rapture occurring. And I think that happens in the seals, the seven seals. Like I said before in some previous sessions, We're going to show you that the seven seals are actually part of the last days of the church. And within those seven seals, God reveals a a significant event that we think is the rapture. So, which seal is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You need to do some reading yourself and see if you can find it before we talk about it in the next couple of weeks. But for now, let's just assume the following things. One, the rapture is Jesus coming back for the church, and two, it's pretty clear, this is not the rapture in chapter four, verse one, and to anybody who says it is based on John going up to heaven, that's really, really weak evidence, and we're going to show you a lot stronger evidence of where the Bible is saying that the rapture occurs in the narrative of the book of Revelation. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Now, another reason people argue about this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, is that some people say there is no rapture, because the word rapture is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, that's a little bit disingenuous, okay? People who say that uh, don't really understand how the Bible has been translated from Greek into other languages. As you know, the Bible in the New Testament was written originally in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And since none of us read Greek anymore, we had to learn how to translate it. And so from the time that the New Testament was written and it was complete before the turn of the century, before uh, the year 100, it was complete and the canon was complete, um, we had to start translating it into other people's languages because the apostles and different Christians were running around and and spreading the gospel throughout the known world. So they needed the scriptures. And so translations started coming about. Now, originally, one of the main translations for the church to have in the New Testament was into Latin. Into Mm -hmm. Latin. And that's where you'll see how this word rapture comes about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, I'm going to flip over to there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, we will see that the word rapture actually does occur. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 says this, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. Now this phrase, caught up, this word, these, these two words, caught up, is the English translation of a Greek word called uh, harpezo. And this Greek word harpezo literally means to snatch or to catch up. Now when the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, This phrase, harpezo, this Greek word harpezo, was translated into the Latin word rapturo. Rapturo, which means the same thing, to be snatched up. Now, rapturo is where we get the English word rapture. So, yes, the rapture is mentioned in the Bible. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, and it comes from the Latin word rapturo. Now, in most modern English Bibles, we translated from the Greek not into Latin and then into English. No, we translated from Greek straight into English. And so most English translations use the words caught up here in like I just read in First Thessalonians chapter four verse seventeen, almost all translations will say the words "caught up," and that refers to this same Greek word harpazo, and it's where we get the word "rapture" from when it was translated into Latin "rapturo." So, yes, the rapture is mentioned in the Bible, First Thessalonians chapter four verse seventeen. And it is mentioned also in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read these passages so you kind of get a feel for what is going on with these events, okay? But again, don't be hung up on the fact that the translation is saying the word caught up instead of rapture. I mean, if that bothers you, then you can call it whatever you want. If you want to call it rapturo, From the Latin, do so. That's where we get the word rapture. If you want to just call it being caught up with Christ, do so. It's the same event. And if you want to be literal about it and call it the snatching or being taken, that would be great. So whatever you want to call it, seriously, the event called the rapture or being caught up is real. And it is in Scripture in two places. Let me read the first one. 1 Thessalonians 4 starting in verse 13. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died, so you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians who have died. I can tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, Okay, that's the Greek word harpazo or the Latin word raptiero, and in English, caught up, or the snatching, we'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. So comfort and encourage each other with these words. So it is a real event, and Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians, and he lists it as the reason he's talking about it is to comfort us to bring comfort to us so that we know what's going to happen with our loved ones when they have been uh, passed on and buried, that we will see them once again. But not only that, he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Throughout this chapter, he does a, a very good, precise order of events. And near the end, he talks about the rapture. But this is the way he uses the words in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe it. I'm going to start uh in verse fifty one but let me tell you a wonderful secret God has revealed to us. not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in the moment in the bleaking of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, The Christians who have died will be raised with transformed bodies, then we who are living will be transformed so that we will never die for our earth Perishable earthly bodies must be transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die. And so he is literally talking about the same events. The dead in Christ arise first, and then we will meet with them and Christ with our glorified bodies, our glorified bodies as well. And we will meet all together with Christ in the air, in the sky. Okay. Christ doesn't actually come back to earth during this event. We will meet him up in the clouds, in the sky. So, yes, the rapture is real. It is a real event, and it's one of hope. It brings hope to us, and we should be looking forward to that day and not arguing about whether or not it's real. It's clearly real in the Bible. And like I say, don't get hung up on the word rapture not being in the Bible. That's just part of the translation process. If you want to call it rapture, go ahead. Most people do. If you want to call it being caught up, go ahead. But just remember, it is a real event and it will happen when Christ comes and gets his church. Now, a third reason people argue about this verse in Revelation, Revelation 4, verse 1, and argue about the rapture is that some people say uh, there is no rapture because the Bible talks about the second coming, not the third coming. Well, actually, I want you to let you know something the word second coming are never found within the Bible. That's right. The words second coming are not found within the Bible in Greek or Hebrew or uh, Latin or anywhere in the English Bible. The second coming is not mentioned at all in the New Testament in reference to Christ and his coming to earth to judge the earth. That is never mentioned. In fact, when Christ talks about uh, the different events in the future, he uses a word return, and it's always in the context of coming back for his believers. Then later on in Revelation, we read about Christ coming to earth with his multitude of angels and at the battle of Armageddon to judge the earth. So we're ending up with three major events with Christ dealing with us on earth. The first one is, of course, when he came uh, and was born uh, to the Virgin Mary and lived his life and died on the cross for us to save us from our sins. That first time that he came on earth was him coming as the Savior. And then, like I said, we see him coming again at the end of the Bible, in the end of Revelation, as a warrior, as someone who defeats the enemy and defeats death and sin finally, once and for all, and Satan, and casts them into hell along with the false prophet. We see that, and we'll talk about that later. But he comes as a warrior to do that. But in between the first time he comes to earth and the second time he comes to earth, there's actually a third event in between those two. He doesn't come all the way down to earth. He doesn't walk the earth again, but he meets his bride, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as he calls them in Hebrews, his beloved church. He meets us in the sky. And that's the three encounters that the Bible talks about when Jesus is coming. And typically, the second one, when he meets us in the sky, is what Jesus refers to when he says, when I return. Whenever he talks about the third time, he, maybe he will say the phrase, when I come into my kingdom. And that is clear in Revelation that he's talking about coming down to earth again. So, Christ came the first time as the Savior. He will come again and is due any time to come again as the bridegroom for his church, the bride. And then he will come to earth a second time. And actually he'll be on earth as the victor, as the warrior that defeats the enemy once and for all. But this second occurrence, even though he doesn't come down to earth, but he meets his church up in the sky, that is what we refer to as the rapture, or being caught up or snatched up to meet with Christ. All the believers, both living and dead, will be caught up and snatched up and meet Christ in the sky. Now, to understand why the Bible talks about it that way, and why there's those, uh, three different encounters, should we say? We kind of need to understand a little bit about weddings. That's right. Specifically, we want to talk about the Hebrew traditions, the Jewish traditions of the weddings. Let's start with uh, an understanding of that, and then you'll see how that fits in with Jesus coming for his church. First of all, you need to realize something with the Jewish wedding, that it came into two phases. It wasn't just a one-time event. It was two phases, and it took a fairly long time. It wasn't just a one-day affair. The first part of the ceremony occurs at the bride's home, where she is living with her parents. And what happens is, Maybe a young man sees a a girl or hears about a girl that is very pretty and attractive to him, and he starts falling in love with her. He gets his father to go negotiate with the girl's father about a dowry, is what we would call it down here in the South, a dowry, but the price for the bride. And they come up with a, a price. And people, before you start getting all upset and saying, what, are they selling this daughter? No, they don't sell the daughter at all. What this is, is to pay the father of the bride a price because he's losing a valuable member of his family because she will go and live with her husband. So she, he is losing a valuable member of his family. And so to compensate, he is given a price because she's a very precious part of his family. So the groom will get his father to go talk to the bride's groom, and they all set a price. Let's say it's one bag of gold, okay? And he shows up at the bride's home, the home of her father, and he's allowed to come in, and he gives the father the bag of gold. And then he sits down at the table with his prospective bride. And without saying a word, he'll pour a glass of wine and slide it to her. And if the bride wants to accept his proposal of marriage, that actual glass of wine is the proposal of marriage. If she wants to accept it, she doesn't have to say a word either. She just picks up the glass and drinks it. And if she doesn't want to accept it, she'll push it back and give it back to the groom. And that says, no, I don't want to marry you. Now, you might be asking, how do I know all this about the Jewish wedding? Well, I learned it from a a rabbi who became a Christian. His name was Zoe Levitt. And there's many other rabbis who became Christians now that uh, Messianic believers they're called. And you can do a lot of research on the Internet and find out a lot of these authors that talk about this. So it's become, it's becoming common knowledge now. So phase one of the wedding ceremony. He will pay the price to the father and he'll slide the glass of wine to his prospective bride. If she accepts his proposal, she drinks the wine, and from then on, they are considered married. It's not like it is in America where you're engaged and you can break off your engagement. No, they are considered legally married. They have to be faithful to each other. They can't cheat on each other. They can't date anybody else. They have to be faithful to each other from that moment. It's a legally binding contract from that moment on that she drinks the wine. Now, when she drinks the wine, he is supposed to say some traditional words. The groom is. He will say something like this. He'll say, listen, I'm going to go to my father's house and prepare a place for us. And I expect to come back, let's say in spring. So when you see the trees budding and, uh, bearing fruit in the spring and beginning to blossom. Be looking for me, and I will come for you. And then he leaves because, again, in the culture, the bride has to go live with the groom in his family's land because the land was passed on down through the male children. So she is going to be leaving her father, who is paid handsomely for his precious daughter, and she will go live with the groom. But while he is away preparing a place for her, she is supposed to be on the lookout, watching for him. And she can't date anybody else. She can't uh, try and marry anybody else. She has to stay faithful to him. And that is why she will constantly be looking out. Because one day, and as he promised, he said, I may come in the spring, or it might be in the fall, depending on when he wants to get married. But in our illustration, he's saying, I'll come in the spring. And she's looking for that. As soon as she starts seeing the signs of springtime, she's packed and ready to go, waiting for the groom to come get her. Now, this brings us into the second phase of the Jewish wedding. What would happen when it's time? uh, Well, first of all, let me back up a little bit. He goes back to his father's house during this time and he starts building a room or a wing onto his father's house for them to live in. It's still the custom in Jerusalem today that if you marry someone, you add on to your family's house and that's where you live. So you will see that in Jerusalem to this day, new additions upon old ones. Because the bride and groom are building their place where they will dwell within their father's house, but it's a separate little room or wing, however you know wealthy they are and what they can afford. Now, you may think that the groom has all the decision making as soon as he wants to he can go get his bride that's not the way it works. The father will make sure he's overseeing what the groom is building, and he'll make sure that it is properly done, and adequate, and a very good place to bring his new bride to. Because let's face it, if it was just left up to the groom, most grooms would just throw up a shack or maybe even a little tent just so they could hurry up and go get married and start enjoying married life. But no, the father is overseeing it, and he will tell the groom when everything's ready to go get his bride. And let's say he's working on his addition, and the groom's out there working, and a neighbor comes by, and he says, hey, I hear you're engaged or betrothed. I hear that you're married, in other words. And I, when are you going to go get your bride? Well, the tradition demands that he says the following words. Well, I told her I'd come and get her in the spring, but of that day and hour, I don't know. Only my father does. And by saying those words, he's fulfilling the tradition. He's saying, look, I'm going to make sure my wife is very well cared for and my father is on top of it, making sure everything's just so before I go get the bride. And that's the Jewish tradition of how it works. Now, when it's time to go, when his father says, go get your bride, then all his uh, friends called the groomsmen and all, there's a big party, the family members come and they go marching back with music, blowing trumpets and everything back to the bride's home. But they never go up to the home. They never go all the way to the, her house. They stop away from her house. They never are there totally again. And they blow a trumpet, and his best man will call out, the bridegroom is here. Come meet your groom. And she's supposed to be ready, and she grabs her suitcase and runs out to meet her husband. Because like I said, they were legally married. She was just waiting for everything to be fixed and prepared for. So she runs out and meets with her groom, and then they all go back to the father's house. To the groom's house where her new home has been built, and they have the second phase of the celebration, and the wedding feast occurs there. Now let's see how this wonderful wedding ceremony relates to what Christ was saying to his disciples and the prophecies about Christ's return for the Christians. First of all, let's talk about the wine. If you remember during the Passover Supper, the last Passover Supper he shared with his disciples, Jesus changed things. See, there's a series of four wine glasses that you're supposed to drink. Four toasts, I should say, that you're supposed to make. Everybody's got their own glass. And there's, during the meal, there's four different times it's filled up with wine and they, they drink a toast. Now, during the third time, of this toast. is on later in the meal. They've already eaten some bread called the matzah bread, which is just a flat cracker broken. They've already done that. And after they eat that flat uh, unleavened bread, that cracker, so to speak, they drink the third glass of wine. Everybody's got their own glass. But this is where Jesus changed things if you read about it in the gospel. He took his glass, his cup of wine, And he said to them, this is my blood. Remember that? This is how we get the Lord's Supper. He started off saying, this is the bread broken for you, my body broken for you. But then when it came to the third glass of wine, he says, this is my blood. Part of it's being poured out as a new covenant for you. And he gave his disciples his cup of wine to pass around. Now, they all had their own glass of wine, but he made a point to pass his around all of them. And so he changed the Passover supper forever into the Lord's Supper, because when he was passing that cup around, they knew exactly what this came from. It came from the wedding traditions of the Jewish people, and they knew he was basically proposing to them and saying, I am the Messiah, I am all believers, groom. You are my bride, I will be uh, the groom, and one day I'll come back for you. That's what he was symbolizing there, and they understood that. Now, when the groom said, I'm going to go to make a place for you, well, listen to what he said that night. In John chapter 14, after he gave them that uh third glass of wine that came from his cup, not their own cup, he said this, don't be troubled. You trust God, now trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's home. I am going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would tell you plainly. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be there with me where I am. So he again is going back to the Jewish wedding ceremony and says, look, I'm fixing to go prepare a place for you. And they understood what was going on because they they understood the wedding vows just like we do. And today in America, you know, we we, if you ever heard anybody say, till death do us part, you know immediately it's coming from our traditional wedding vows here in America. So when they heard this from Jesus, they knew immediately. He was paralleling, you know, making a parallel between the Jewish wedding ceremony and his return. Now, what about the signs? Because remember, the groom said, When you see these things happening, I will be coming to get you. Well, Jesus gave signs too of his return. If you read Matthew 24 and 25, chapters 24 and 25. Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. You'll see the different signs that Jesus gives of the last days of the church. The signs to watch for and keep a lookout for, knowing that that is a signal that he is soon to come get you. So he did give signs. And we're going to be looking at all these different signs later on in future sessions. Now, finally, what about this thing about telling people uh, only the father knows when I'm going to come get the bride? That's what the groom had to say, right? That's what the groom, when a neighbor walked up and he said, when are you going to go get your bride? He had to tell them, well, only my father knows because I'm preparing a place now. Well, same thing that was happening with Jesus in Matthew 24, where he's giving some of the signs out he concludes this chapter with this. Listen to this. And then at last, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the nations of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man arrive on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with the sound of a mighty trumpet blast. And they will gather together his chosen ones from the father's ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from a fig tree. When its buds become tender and its leaves begin to sprout, you know without being told that summer is near. Just so. When you see the events I've described beginning to happen, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I assure you, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will remain forever. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So see, right there in Matthew 24, we see that Jesus, right up to the end, is following the parallels of the Jewish wedding ceremony to understand, to let us understand, to give us a, oh, an illustration so that we can understand what it means when he comes back for his believers. So Jesus came the first time on earth as Savior. One day he will come back on earth again as the victor. As the warrior to defeat to defeat Satan once and for all, but in between time, because he promised that his church, his bride, would not have to go through God's judgment of earth, and we read about that in a couple of sessions, last couple of sessions. Well, in between those two events, Jesus will come all the way to Earth, but will meet in the clouds at a sound of a trumpet, and his bride will go up to meet him, and Jesus will take us back to his Father's home up in heaven, where he has made a dwelling place for us, and we will enjoy the wedding feast. That is the rapture, and that is why Everything in the Hebrew culture of the weddings is pointing to it. And that is what Jesus was referring to when he gave the signs and said, but no one knows for sure except for my father. It was all about showing that how he would one day return for his believers, his church, his bride, just like a groom in the wedding ceremony would do. So where does that leave us? Well, we're right there, aren't we? We see the remnant church and we see the apostate church and we don't know when he'll return, do we? But the signs are there. And so we need to start watching. He may not come back until a year from now, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 100 years from now. But so far, we've seen at least one sign the apostate church, and the remnant. And it's going on just like we learned in the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. So we will also be learning some other signs that are taking place. And those signs are in the seven seals. And you'll see how they all pull together to be signs to tell us to get ready, to prepare for the day our groom comes and gets us what is commonly called the rapture. It is real, and it could be soon. So my advice to you is keep your eyes to the sky and be on the lookout for your groom, because he's coming. And in the meantime, read your Bible.
0: Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.